What's up, gang? Thanks for listening to The Undiplomatic Podcast, the show with undiplomatic takes about the foreign policy scene. I'm your host, Van Jackson, and we have the crew all here. I haven't gone through the roll call in a while. Uh, Pete McKenzie. <laughs> <laughs> Kiara Mitchell. Hello. Gabby Magnuson. Hey. And Jake Dello. What's up? I was going to say, if you fuck their names up, it's been a month. <laughs> it's A lot has happened in a month. The... Capital insurrection is like front of mind, even though at this point it's a couple weeks old. Friend of the pod, Ben Young, I had him on the show at one point. He just had an op-ed in the Washington Post in response to Senator Marco Rubio's characterization that, you know, the, the capital insurrection is a third world style event. Ben's op-ed, and it's amazing to me that the Washington Post published this, like kudos to them, but it, dro- it name drops Franz Fanon. It indirectly calls M- Rubio a white supremacist, not in so many words, <laughs> but he just yeah. he talks about kind of the genealogy of of what third worldism is. It was supposed to be an alternative, coherent block of like solidarity countries as an alternative to Western imperialism and an alternative to Soviet-style communism, right? And that's that's kind of what it was supposed to be. And so it's like these countries are supposed to be in a post-colonial era determining their own fates. And we didn't let that happen, the West or the Soviets, right? Like we've meddled in their shit and we created, we, we helped make the third world into uh, the place where so much violence was perpetrated. Like we were actively throwing coups and backing proxy forces in the name of anti-communism and the Soviets were actively expanding and all this stuff. And so it became this battlefield. And in the American, like casual, systemically racist imagination, it's like, oh, the third world, it's the place where all this chaotic bad shit happens. It's like, well, yeah, a bunch of chaotic bad shit happens because we were completely derelict and we told ourselves that we were like leading the free world while we were actually arming rebels to overthrow governments. It's like, we were making it a bad place, basically. And then we associate it in this very like diminutive, condescending way with like, oh, that's the backward place. And then so for Rubio to say that like, well, the third world has come to Washington, <sighs> there, it's both like got shades of racism to it, but also there's a way in which it's true because we created, we made the third world the way it was in a sense. Um, and he just, the problem is he exculpates America. Like he, he abdicates American responsibility for the way the third world developed. There's a lot of richness to Ben's piece. I just wanted to shout it out. But like, I also had a piece in uh, Inkstick Media that was like a very personal piece about the capital insurrection. And it, it, I was arguing, among other things, that uh, bro culture and this like Joe Rogan tactical life stuff and the conspiracy theory <laughs> yeah. traff, like all that was incubating what we saw at the Capitol, which was an explosion of fascism, man. And like, I live in this world. I know this world better than like basically anybody on the left. And it was part of the cause uh, of what happened. And it's still there. Everybody still exists in that culture. And so this is going to continue to exist. Uh, This is like nothing has really changed here. It's just that the president himself is no longer stoking insurrection, no longer advocating a self-coup, you know. And National Public Radio had a, a thing that has already done the rounds. Everybody by now has seen the data. But like one in five of the people arrested were military veterans, which speaks directly to my argument about bro culture and militarism and foreign policy. Bro culture is downstream of the endless wars. The endless wars are downstream of militarism itself, of militarism, militarist foreign policy. And then the insurrection is downstream of bro culture. So like all this stuff is linked. And it's not that there's not other factors involved, but this is a big fucking deal because if we understand the causal chain we know that like we haven't escaped anything here like this is not past tense and there was uh, another great piece by this guy Seth Maskett at Mischiefs of Faction which is a website I had not heard of where he says we freaking warned you and he says he's a you know political scientist saying like look the political scientists told you so 
like we warned since 2015, and he goes through the litany of evidence and claims and warnings that political scientists have had about Trump. And so I want to like underscore that we warned you, but the reason why this is super important is because we're warning you now this isn't over, right? The forces that produced the insurrection are still in place. And so it, we, we're making a huge mistake if we just heap everything on Trump and the fact that Trump is gone means the problem is gone. Not true, man. So I just wanted to like put all that out there because I would have liked to have said all that, you know, two or three weeks ago, but we were on break. So, you know. Do you think that people mm -hmm. are using mm -hmm. the fact that Trump is gone, these sort of really insidious people are using that fact to say, oh, Trump's gone, you know, we don't have to worry about it. It's all over. Don't worry. It's not like we have a QAnon follower in Congress or anything. You know, like, is, is it those sorts of people that are pushing this don't worry narrative? It's not, I don't know that people are like pushing the don't worry narrative, but people are just desperate to be normal. There's a kind of liberal, probably the kind that sort of like voted enthusiastically for Biden, which, you know, God bless you, that's fine. But that kind of person is desperate to claim the like America is back narrative, which does not help anything. That's illusory. You know, it, like one of the things Matt does, Bernie Sanders, like one of the things that the left gets right is about understanding Trump, which is Trump himself is downstream of these larger forces of poison in American politics even in global politics, you know, like this is bigger than the U S. Um, and so like, it's not, if, if you understand Trump as a symptom rather than a cause, then you know that the larger problem is there because we haven't done anything about it. So like, this is super dangerous, right? Like you still got these far right nut jobs on telegram and parlor or wherever, or well, not parlor anymore, I guess, but like on text chains <laughs> and shit, <laughs> like they're still plotting the end of the universe, you know? Like that hasn't changed. And the fact that Biden is in power is not going to change anything either. Like uh, Biden is taking some like pretty remarkably progressive steps since coming to office. And I think in the long term that will help alleviate some of the pressure toward insurrection and revolution and civil war. But those those public policy works over such like long timelines that like the people who are hurting now are not going to be mollified by individual executive orders or, uh, you know, a $500 relief check or something. Um, it's just like the stuff that Biden is doing is definitely progressive, definitely in the right direction. It's a drop in the bucket compared to like what is kind of needed right now to um, alleviate these like forces, forces of civil war, basically. So like we're sitting here simmering in this shit. This is not like the fucking capital insurrection podcast, but like it's just such a big deal, you know? <laughs> yeah, definitely. How did you think about this in a historical context? Like, was there a an event that you a historical event that you drew analogies to? Because I, I found it just so, you know, aside from the American Civil War, I, I was struggling to think of a way to to think about this, a historical frame to think about this in. Yeah, I mean, the Civil War is a reasonable comparison. Or it's the it's the place my mind went to as a place of comparison. The problem is like the the challenge of our time now is I think this global far right movement, and there are a couple scholars who have hit this note who are focused on this, and there's a, there are there's a section of the left that's also focused on this. Because this is the transnational fascist type stuff, right? Most people are sleeping on this. And like nobody talks about the fact that around the same time as the Capitol insurrection, there was a, a far right attempt to take over a government building in Germany precisely because these far right exactly. nut jobs were fucking sharing tactics, sharing playbooks, literally yep. actual playbooks. Mm -hmm. Okay. There is a transnational far right. The Christchurch shooter in New Zealand, when you look at the, the stuff he was shitposting before the attack, he was, he first of all, he was not Kiwi, right? He's not of New Zealand. He, he came over here to attack Muslims. 
specifically with that purpose in mind. It's not like he was here for a job and then he lost the job and then he's like, oh, fuck it, I'll kill everybody. He came over here with the purpose of killing people. And when you look at the content of his own rhetoric, he was drawing on all of these themes and memes from the European far right, from Trump's MAGA shit, from the culture wars in America. That was the content of his mind. And yet he's moving across borders, Australia to New Zealand, with ideas from America and Europe to wage this far right problem uh, threat. And like he is he's one data point, one star in the constellation. This is a huge problem. And like I, I feel like we've talked about this before a little bit, but like one of the reasons it's so deeply problematic and one of the reasons we're so blind to it and underprepared is because it is a threat that sits within one of the mainstream political parties in basically every democracy. It's the far right. You have a normal conservative party in every country <laughs> that has elites. And that conservative party, unless they've created a, a, a multi-party coalition like New Zealand, right? The party accommodates themselves to nut jobs that are on the far right. And they, the, the, the dance that they do ultimately unsuccessfully is to try to keep the crazy voters in the tent without giving them influence. But then that masks what they're doing. It kind of like blurs the lines. And what you have with Trump and the Republican Party was that those nut jobs basically took over the party and the elites never really represented anybody. So I don't want to make this about like all conservatives are bad necessarily, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to say that all conservatives are bad, but yeah, I mean, there's a, there's a, there's a great little bit of <laughs> I'm just leaving that. Like, I'm not trying to hate, like, look, I, I have friends who are, you know, country club Republicans and all this stuff, but it, I'm familiar with that side of the world, that side of the universe. But like, I would like in an alternative future, I would have been one of these people, you know. Oh, don't say that. It's I, I have <laughs> to acknowledge that. that it's true. Like I had I made no. different choices that led me on a different path. But like, it's not crazy to then me. Would have that... been a, then would have been a country called Marxist. That's that's almost what I am now, you know, like oh, not, not a Marxist, but uh, also I do love luxury goods, but also I'm like super critical of capital and like, how does that all fit together? I don't know. So anyways, this is a, a devastating thing. The global far right, it was my point, sorry, Pete, was that it has no real precedent that I know of. The only, mm. the only point of comparison that I have actually is um, the Protestant Reformation. Because it was transnational, it was epic order shifting, paradigm shifting. Um, it was sub-state, like it was happening beneath the level of the state, beneath the level of empire, you know? And it ended up transforming the whole order. And hmm. this is like Protestant Reformation for idiots and white supremacists. Where it's like the content of the idea isn't about like, well, maybe the Catholic Church is wrong. The content of the idea is like, well, Trump is actually an uh, alien who's fighting pedophiles or, you know, like whatever the <laughs> like whatever the shifting content is. So it's like we're in yeah. idiocracy, Protestant Reformation. That's like where, where I'm, what I'm worried about. Let's do Prediction Market, where we get Van to predict outcomes from today's current events and keep track of them. All right, for prediction market this week, we're going to have four questions, and that's very unusual, and it's only for today because I've been stewing in some of these for a couple of weeks, and I've been really itching to be able to ask Van. So question one, a couple of weeks ago, uh, Kim Jong-un admitted that uh, North Korean's economic policy had failed. I see that as a very huge admission. Will there be any further admissions of fault or possible moves towards change in North Korea before March? So, uh, no, I don't think so. Um, to me, this is not such a big deal. It's smart politics. One of the things that we've, we've seen from um, Kim Jong-un in particular is that he's kind of a savvy dictator. And my sense in the modern age, I don't, I don't know that I've seen this written anywhere exactly, but it's that like, 
the dictators that thrive are the ones who are not so rigid, if that makes sense. Yeah. Obviously, like dictators are rigid by nature, but like the greater your ability to accommodate observable reality with your own authoritarian narrative, the more uh, likely you are to be able to like hold on to power and blunt challenges to your rule, all things being equal. And so one of the things that North Korea started doing in the 90s when it was going through this like really bad famine to the point where the country was on the brink of collapse and like people seem to forget this now unless you're a Korea watcher, but like the internal narrative of the regime in an everyday North Korean life became about like uh, North Koreans see themselves as like exceptional people. Obviously, you have to in order to like be you know, such a batshit crazy regime. And the one of the things that they always prided themselves on was like, they're the legit Koreans. They have the legit claim to like Korean identity and Korean history. And it's the South Koreans who are the inferior Koreans. And when in the 90s, South Korea's economy was booming. They were basically a free people, a consolidated democracy. And then North Korea is literally on the brink of collapse and everybody is starving the the contrast was impossible to miss even in a closed information ecosystem like north korea so what happened was like the internal narrative of the regime changed to not not be we are better than north uh, south korea it it was we are we are different we are unique it's our it's our specialness only we know what it's like to yeah. suffer those punk ass bitches in the south don't know what it's like <laughs> to be real like we real that that was their kind of the i'm paraphrasing what the fuck? <laughs> not an exact quote but like that became the internal narrative and it just shows how like if the regime would have held a hard line about how we are the superior country and south korea is the the poor place that we should feel sorry for that old narrative collapses in on itself and forces people to wake up whenever they see the evidence to the contrary, you know? And so the narrative had to change for them to survive. Otherwise, it would have woken people up and forced uh, kind of like unrest or change or whatever. And instead, yeah. there, there's like this rhetorical adaptation that happens. And to me, that's what we, we've seen this more and more with Kim Jong-un, where he's like, he tells it like it is. In relative terms, he's still a, a dictating bullshitter, but like <laughs> compared to it's a totalitarian, yeah. yeah, I mean, like relative to totalitarianism, he tells it like it is. Yeah, and so yeah, everything's relative. But um, so I don't want to overstate it. But the fact that he would come out and say that, like, look, our five-year plan didn't go exactly as planned. That's kind of what he has to say to keep the trains moving. And the fact that you're being honest with reality or perceived reality means that the, the sentence you say right after that, which is, and that's why we got to keep doing this, or that's why we're going to go in this direction. It makes people have like automatic buy-in as opposed to unrest or like, oh, they're lying to us. Nobody in North Korea can say Kim Jong-un's lying about their economic policy, right? So it yeah. like, it, it co-ops people's minds in a sense. So like that's why I'm I'm not totally surprised because we've seen North Korea do that. That was a really long. Well, <laughs> that was really good. That was exactly the sort of answer I was after because I really didn't know what to make of it because I was on the fence of thinking, you know, the the all powerful party does not make mistakes in North Korea. But that that's actually very practical the way you've explained it there. So it's exactly what I was after. Yeah. <laughs> Question two. Following the ratification of the New START Treaty by the Russian Senate and Duma in record five hours, and the decision made within the last week to suspend arms sales to the UAE and Saudi Arabia by the United States, should we hope to see any further moves made in global arms control before July? Before July, I don't think so. This is, it's a quite a like long question, but there are a lot of moving parts in what's happening. So right now, State Department is re-looking. Secretary of State Tony Blinken gave a very ambiguous answer when he was asked about this the other day, like moving forward with arms sales to UAE and Saudi Arabia in particular. 
And Russia obviously doesn't want to see that. And it would undermine a kind of spirit of cooperation with Russia, which is already like on the rocks anyway. But um, Biden's administration is getting pressure from the left anyways to not engage in uh, foreign military sales to the UAE and Saudi Arabia, right? Saudi Arabia in particular because of the war in Yemen. Um, and so the these decisions about arms transfers to Middle East dictators, um, but who are happen to be very close friends of the United States, if we can still say that, not that I want it to be the case, um, <laughs> but it all fits within a, like a Russian geopolitics frame too, you know? And so um, Russia and the U.S. have, at this point, basically extended New START um, for uh, another five years. <sighs> But what else will they do? Possibly nothing. I mean, for the sake of the prediction, I'm going to say nothing. But one of the reasons is because, like, this is so complicated. I don't know what's going to end up happening with, like, U.S. weapons sales policy or, like, security assistance policy, right? And, like, the way those decisions are made are sometimes in a vacuum from decisions about, like, for example, Russia. And they really are interdependent, you know? I mean, I only really ask the question because... You know, it sort of felt like exactly what we wanted from Biden foreign policy, sort of the repairing of all the things that Trump broke, you know. Mm. So I'm and and I'm notoriously cynical about establishment politics and I could not be happier so far. Yeah, so far. So far. I just don't. So far. It's not I I don't know where this goes from here is the thing. Yeah, exactly. Past the low hanging fruit. Yeah. Question three. How long until Trump gets arrested? (laughs) oh dude i don't know i don't know that he even will i say this year but i don't know man i i that's a tough question well question four this is more in your area of expertise man (laughs) following the recent clashes between ethiopia and their neighbor sudan should we expect to see any de-escalation of force in africa within the next two weeks two to three weeks so for the prediction i'm going to say no um, for my confession, I'm going to say I did not know this was happening. Um, <laughs> I, I, I've been preoccupied, as you could tell from the opening segment, with the Capitol insurrection. Generally, I'm like a really deep Africa subject matter expert, but it's opposite. Well, but now. yeah, <laughs> thanks to prediction market. But yeah, I wasn't even dialed into this. Well, essentially what's happening is Ethiopia is slowly escalating uh, basic border comp conflicts with Sudan um they've actually got to the point where they're starting to use artillery it doesn't look like it's de-escalating at all um so I think you might be right on that one man well yeah I mean just I mean one of the things that's funny about Africa questions and prediction market given what my expertise is one of the virtues of IR actually is that you can offer takes that are like analytically informed with minimal knowledge and minimal information is that advisable? I don't know, right? That's kind <laughs> of the... Them know our secrets. <laughs> don't tell them that. They'll figure it out. Yeah. I, the, it's better than not being able to provide any basis for an answer, right? But like having theories in mind and frameworks and stuff, concepts, gives you something to work with. So I'm able to like pontificate from more than zero basis. So to all the listeners, let's uh, not hear that last part we don't make stuff up (laughs) we know exactly what we're talking about every take we make is fully informed and analytical so there's prediction market this there we go all right time for sale of twitter where we curate the best and worst of twitter so that you don't have to so this tweet this week comes from friend of the pod paul post who as you guys all know does amazing long threads on Twitter. And the one that really caught my eye recently was his response to how he changed or didn't change the content in his intro to international relations course during the four years of Trump. And I thought it was just fascinating seeing what academic theory he had deemed relevant or irrelevant after four years of insanity. And basically, he provided much more on race, for example, by doing deep dives into the racism that drove Woodrow Wilson and his kind of approach to international relations after World War One, He provided much more on clash of civilizations thinking because that's 
at least notionally, one of the drivers of um, a lot of foreign policy thinkers in the Trump administration. More on what the international order actually is and what its demise might be. More on hegemonic stability theory. And interestingly, more on whether to stabilize or to weaponize international markets. What he doubled down on, what he retained, was the asshole theory of U.S. international relations, a, a bigger focus on thinking of the U.S. as just a, a schoolyard bully and what that might mean. And really interestingly, what he gave less of was the awesomeness of democracies and his focus on democratic peace theory. He, he explained that he doesn't really know if the U.S. has a grasp as a concept anymore, or if it did. And so didn't feel comfortable doing as much of a focus on that as he previously did. And then finally, on leader personalities, I, I think controversially, he thinks that there was more continuity than one might have expected under the Trump administration. I mean, Van, I wonder how this chimes with your own approach to teaching IR in the age of Trump. Yeah, so it's a great question. And if again, Paul Post is the fucking man of like IR Twitter. You really, he's a fucking God. He is, you can, you could get all the source material that you need for a brilliant IR education just from his tweet threads. Okay. Not, not the content of the tweet threads, but like the things he links to. Okay. Not, you're not going to get a master's in IR from Twitter, but you will be able to find the sources that you need for like, how to think about this stuff and where to go deeper, where to focus your attention and shit like that. My, the way I've adapted um, teaching security studies, right? Subfield of IR is the most important subfield of IR, frankly, because it's the origins of IR is about the causes of war and peace. <laughs> right. Um, and that's what security studies is. But anyways, the, um, the way that I've changed has been very similar to Paul Post, Right. So this year is the first time where I'm actually introducing um, W.E.B. Du Bois's kind of theory of imperialism to explain World War One, not as the dominant explanation, but as like one of the competing explanations among many. Right. Including the spiral model, including balance of power theory, you know, like the cult of the offensive. Like, so there's going to be multiple theories as there always have been. But one of them in the mix is. Um, basically like imperialist political economy and that's new um, and related to that because like Du Bois's take on imperialism is as much racial as it is critical or Marxist that's one of the things that really changed for me waking up to how racialized and civilizational U.S. foreign policy is and like Trump really exposed that in a way that was impossible to ignore if you're if you're fucking awake in your brain. And it like changes the color of so much of the stuff that uh, the U.S. does, including especially against China. And it's like, I think China's all kinds of bad, you know, like I've been pretty, pretty clear about that <laughs> on the record. But that doesn't mean that like what we're doing is analytically sound or morally correct, right? You, you want to be at least morally correct or analytically sound, ideally both. But actually, we're kind of neither. And so, like, that's a problem. And so, like, the racial color to so much U.S. foreign policy is 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 new to me, and I've changed based on that a little bit. As soon as Trump became president, I started teaching about the liberal international order. So, like, that's been in my syllabus. But yeah, like the those kinds of changes are very close to where Paul is. I wasn't teaching democratic peace theory to begin with because it's kind of bullshit. Or like maybe the nice thing to say is like, um, yeah. you know, it's <laughs> it's explanatory power is unclear, and it's unclear if we should be taking normative cues from it or like basing policy on it. Like that's I'm not so sure. Um, you said you're going to use that um, great article we covered last year for it, eh? That uh, one by. Oh, I forgot who wrote it. I really should know. Um, the McDonald's Peace Theory one. Yes, that's new as of this year too. Paul Musgrave's McDonald's Peace yes, Theory Musgrave. is over. I can't remember if that's what it's called, but like that's basically an indictment of liberal IR. And there's lots of utility in liberal IR, but there's so much wrong with it and it's so misguided that you can't actually make it your worldview. And the problem I think is that most people actually did make it their worldview. 
um, in a lot of IR academic scholarship had for the past 30 years has been operating in that vein. I was moving away from that starting in like 2016, 2017 already. So like the weaponization of interdependence and all of that, a lot of liberal IR scholars are waking up to that being a thing, but I was, I was there years ago. But yeah, so this is an interesting thing because like the Trump era has changed a lot of people's sense of what reality is, about what the American project is or should be, about what we should be doing in IR. You know, like I had a, de a debate with one of my buddies who uh, teaches in Canada and it was like, what are we, what is, what are academics on Twitter for? Like, what are political scientists doing? Are we, are we producing knowledge or are we producing ways of thinking about the world or are we trying to influence the world? like policy advocacy right and it's like well it's kind of all of the above depending on your perspective you know the a lot of the debates among academics end up especially on twitter end up being at root a different philosophical sense about what are we doing here you know like if you believe that your job is to produce knowledge above all else and you really believe that you're doing a good job of that. And that's what you're really, when you have a theory, you've actually produced a nugget of knowledge. If that's your view, then in the middle of a fucking existential crisis at the Capitol, you're going to be like, actually, it's not a coup because it's like, <laughs> fuck, dude, the, the, the Reichstag's on fire, bro. Like, what are you doing? Stop. Stop this fucking pet entry, man. But like, that's where it comes from. You know, like. What we call a thing does matter, but what you call a thing while the Titanic is sinking and you're on it does not matter. You know what I mean? If you're engaging in the public sphere or in uh, journal articles with a sense of, of advocacy or like speaking to the moment, you're going to have a different attitude and a different take than somebody who thinks you're in the knowledge building business. Or somebody, you know, like me, like Paul Musgrave, who thinks we're in the providing perspectives business. We're in the make sense of things business. Doesn't mean we're right. Doesn't mean we know fucking anything. <laughs> but we're here to make sense of things. And you can, you can try to build knowledge based off of that. You can try to advocate for policy based off that. But it's the make of, making sense of things first that is like our mission, you know. And so like different philosophies for different folks, slight tangent off of Paul's, Paul's post, Paul posts post. But uh, yeah, it's a very good question. <laughs> the thing is, if, if you haven't changed shit after four years of Trump, then you might need more self-reflection. Something has to have changed. Like the world is fundamentally different than it was five years ago, like wildly different, you know? So I don't know. Thank you, Paul Post, for bringing all this to surface. Awesome. So uh, my tweet of the week is from Aaron Connolly, who is a research fellow in Southeast Asian political change and foreign policy. So he made this thread coming off one made by James Crabtree, where the latter made his own thread regarding what should be like an Asian priority within the Biden administration. That is stopping the balance in the Indian Ocean drifting towards China, as we saw happen in the South China Sea from 2012 to 2014. So to this, Connolly tweets, one interesting thing about Indo-Pacific discourse is the way that it has elevated the Indian Ocean and U.S. strategy beyond, I think, its strategic importance to the U.S. He goes on saying, the Indian Ocean is simply not as important to U.S. strategy as the waterways of the first and second island chains, or even the remainder of the Pacific. U.S. efforts in the Indian Ocean risk drawing attention away from those waterways to an area of secondary strategic importance. There's also the challenge of coalition building in the Indian Ocean. We have a long-standing treaty allies in the Pacific. Indian interests are different than these allies, and their participation is likely to always be more contingent than Japan, Australia, or even Singapore. So, I guess, first things first, Ben, do you agree with all of this? Yes. Uh, I was a little surprised to see this coming from him, but it's it's a brilliant <laughs> um, thread this should be like a book, basically. I mean, this is the, one of the most important insights, I think, about Asian security or like U.S. Asia policy anyway, that I've seen in a long time. And it's it's almost weird to me that it's coming through Twitter via the different means, modes of communication <laughs> that are possible, because this is the dumbest mode. But like <laughs> the the profundity of this to me is that like 
Indo. So I've always been a skeptic of like using the phrase Indo-Pacific, but especially after reading uh, Rory Metcalf's recent book on the Indo-Pacific, I think there's actually analytical value in keeping the term. I don't think it's there's analytical value in substituting Asia or Asia Pacific for Indo-Pacific. I think that there's these are Venn diagram here and like these things all overlap. But when you right. when you invoke one versus another depends very much on what you're talking about. And under the under the Trump administration, Indo-Pacific came to mean specifically China containment. That is that is it's all about the counterbalancing game against China. That's literally what it refers to. That fake ass strategy document that they declassified uh, <laughs> or right before the end of the administration was yeah. it, it said that in so many words. It's like Indo-Pacific is about encircling China or whatever. That wasn't a secret anyways, but like it just it was proof beyond a shadow of a doubt. And so like the quad and the Indo-Pacific, you know, like there's a separate analytical question whether we should be in playing that kind of game and there's arguments for and against it. My problem is A, Indo-Pacific does not equal Asia and we still need to retain Asia for analytical reasons as a term. And uh, I have a, a book that I'm literally finishing right now that explains why partially. But the the big thing here was that like, even though I think Indo-Pacific as a phrase is something we should we should retain and like Biden will keep using it, I'm sure, because like Pacific Command is now called Indo-Pacific Command and shit like that. But um, so like the, the term is going to stay. But under Biden, the term is no longer going to equal containment. Yeah. When Biden or, you know, Lloyd Austin or somebody mentions the phrase Indo-Pacific, it doesn't have the same connotation or it shouldn't as it did just even a couple months ago. And so like there's room for confusion here about all this. But the thing that's profound that I have to, I'm like filibustering myself here, sorry, is that the Indo-Pacific as in stretching over to South Asia, the Indian Ocean region, IOR, that is not necessarily in America's interest to do. And it is definitely like that part of the of Asia is definitely, definitely not as important as the Pacific Islands region to America or Southeast Asia to America or Northeast Asia to America. So the Asia Pacific has demarcated away from India, Pakistan, Sri Lanka, Nepal, Bhutan. The rest of the Asia Pacific yeah. is is more strategically important than the Indian Ocean region. The Indian Ocean region matters to the US a little bit because of like ships carrying bullshit on them, but like there's always other <laughs> there's alternative routes for fucking ships to go, guys. Come on. Like that's not the end of the world. Certainly not something you fight a war over. The reason why it matters is for the larger balancing game against China. And if you're a strategist playing the anti-China game, you want to draw China's attention uh, and resources toward uh, a place that's not so important to you to drain them, but not to drain us. So like we would be stupid to fight a war in the Indian Ocean, aside from the fact that it's hard for the U.S. to project power there. Uh, but we could possibly leverage India, although India refuses to be leveraged, refuses to work with us too closely. But we we could benefit from close ties to India or to by backing India in some way against China if this is the game you want to play. So, like, I'm not necessarily endorsing the game, but, like, there's a logic there, you know. But we have to. And so, like, what happened in the Trump administration and among a lot of Washington strategists was, like, they got so enamored of this game, the great game, that everything became about Indo-Pacific and they were, they be, you know, intellectually, they subordinated themselves to Australia and Japan and Australia and Japan both wanted Indo-Pacific because they wanted to balance China and that's how you play the balancing game. You expand the game to the you know, Indian Ocean field of play. But that doesn't mean that it's in America's interest to do that, right? I get why Japan and Australia would want to do that. And if America can do it at low cost and low risk, then I can understand the argument for it. 
but we should not get confused about the national interest here. The Pacific Ocean is infinitely more important to America, given the geography, than the Indian Ocean. It's not even debatable, dude. It's not remotely debatable. So, like, we have to focus on our neighborhood first before we look out and skip over and go abroad. You know what I mean? And Northeast Asia, we have unique security commitments. There's a unique concentration of wealth there. Southeast Asia, to the, it's the same thing to a degree, you know, less so than Northeast Asia. But like the Indo-Pacific stuff really sh clouded and shrouded sober calculations about what America's interests are and where it has high leverage versus low leverage and the risks, high, le high versus low risks. And like a lot of just there's no critical thinking going on in the like Indo-Pacific bubble, you know, Aaron Connolly's thread gets at all of this and surfaces a lot of what I just said, but in like a way more succinct way. So it's like there's something valuable here to keep in mind. And none of it means that we're going to get rid of Indo-Pacific as a term, but it does mean like we need to put it, relativize it, think more critically, put it in context, which is what I think he did. Do you think it's something we see quite a bit like regarding political discourse, that just like elevating certain priorities and strategy that's not necessarily important? Like do you see like this pattern, like for example, with the Indian Ocean repeated in other strategies? We, so this is why narratives and frames are everything, you know, like yeah. the, the choices that you make and where you focus your resources and your attention, that stuff is downstream of defining what the choices are that's downstream of defining how you make sense of the situation in the first place. Like what, what's the story here? What's the narrative? What, what ends up happening is like, if you don't think carefully about what's going on here in a proper diagnosis, and then from there figuring out like, okay, what it's, what's the range of our choices and what actually makes sense. If you're just queuing off of like the media or what pundits are talking about, then you end up chasing the shiny object. In the Obama era, that's what the South China Sea was. It's like we didn't have a very good concept for, you know, what's at stake here. It's like, oh, freedom of navigation. That's pretty abstract. Like, are you going to go to war for that? Like, I'm not sure yeah. you're going to get much support for that. But there was something important going on, but it like it wasn't well diagnosed. And even apart from the fact that the South China Sea is important, true, we didn't have a sense of like, how important is this relative to everything else going on in American foreign policy? And how, how much risk and resources should we be allocating toward this issue? And it became an all-consuming issue. Same with North Korea in 2017 with the crisis. North Korea is not worth going to fucking war over, but we almost went to nuclear war over, something, over undoing something that was already done, which is our nuclear program. And it's like, does, is that... Does it make sense to risk nuclear war to make one piece of shit country reverse a policy decision? No, man. All right. Two quick tweets from me. One from um, Johnny QC. And he says, left Twitter follower brackets, zero to 500 <laughs> socialist nans. I had to look up what nan was. <laughs> and, and, and I'm still not sure, to be honest. Uh, 500 to 1,000 followers, shit posters, 1,000 to 5,000 <laughs> very online shit posters, <laughs> 5,000 to 10,000 followers, academics slash podcasters. Hey, a little, on, a little <laughs> on the nose. Um, uh, 10,000 to 25,000 followers, very online academics, 25,000 to 100,000 followers, very online podcasters, 100,000 to 500,000 followers, MPs, 500,000 to 1 million followers, token broadsheet leftists, 1 million plus followers, Jeremy Corman. <laughs> I have no like hot take to say. I just felt like this was very accurate, like 100% accurate. It, it was very kind of them to uh, put shit posters and podcasters and academics in separate categories. Yeah, I appreciate we'd that. Love together a lot. <laughs> yeah, I liked it. Anyways, shout out to that guy. The uh, second thread or short tweet from me is uh, from Patrick Iber, who's a progressive historian, focuses on Latin America. He says, look, 30 years ago, I think the joke slash observation that the U.S. had two parties, 
a right-wing party and a center-right party had a lot of truth in it. But it seems to me that we now have a far-right party and a center-left party. And uh, I think, I don't have a lot to say about this. I just think this is actually a very accurate statement. I think that we were all tilted right for a long time in America. The, the two-party system, the third-way liberalism of the Democratic Party was center-right politics, basically. And I think that even though Biden is, you know, very pragmatic and milk toast or whatever, he is adopting a shitload of progressive ideas and policies already. You know, he hasn't even been in office a month and he's doing a lot of progressive stuff. And so I think out of pragmatism, meeting the moment of the Great Depression and COVID, basically he has been, he's been forced to move the party center left. And so it's like we were much more of a center-left party than we were even a couple years ago. And yet I don't think that, I think this diagnosis matters because a system that is far right and center-left is fundamentally unbalanced still. Yep. This is not sustainable. Not a keg. Yeah. So like not I don't I, I don't know how all this ends, but it doesn't sustain. This is not how we will be indefinitely. Change is coming. Change is 100% coming. Is it going to be disastrous change or progressive change or war? I don't know. We'll see. Stay tuned. Let's jump into Armchair Analysis, where we dive into a different piece every week and tell you all about it. This week, we're going to do an article by Kishore Mavibani called Why Attempts to Build an Anti-China Alliance Will Fail in Foreign Policy. The, the premise of the piece is that recent months have been defined by anti-China sentiment in India, Australia, the United States, and Japan, and that that's prompted those four states to work together increasingly in the Quad, the um, the kind of four-part international cooperation that they've got going on. But Kishore challenges whether or not that's actually going to work. He says that first, the four countries have different geopolitical interests and vulnerabilities. Second, they're in the wrong game. The big strategic game in Asia isn't military, but economic. And the best example of that is Australia, which has been going through this absolute shit fight with China recently. Kishore explains that that's why it was unwise for Australia to slap China in the face publicly by calling for an international inquiry on China and COVID-19. It would have been wiser and more prudent to make such a call privately. Incidentally, New Zealand's foreign minister also said that it was undiplomatic of uh, Australia to be so public in its opposition to China, which in itself seems undiplomatic. Yeah, but that anyway, was dumb. Kishore continues to write, now Australia has dug itself into a hole. All of Asia is watching intently to see who will blink in the current Australia-China standoff. In many ways, the outcome is predetermined. If Beijing blinks, other countries may follow Australia in humiliating China. And he, he gives similar reasons for Japan and, and India. He says that, you know, 1,500 years, Japan could live in peace with China, and it will probably do the same for the next 1,000 years. It, they won't become friends, but, you know, they will be able to get along with each other. And with India, the same kind of economic dynamic is at work, where in 1980, the economies of China and India were the same size, but now China's is five times larger. So China's just going to be able to wait them out and, and slowly build that kind of economic hegemony. Over time, the different economic interests and historical vulnerabilities of the four countries will make the rationale for the Quad less and less tenable. I've paid a lot of attention to the Australia-China element of the stat. Yeah, I mean, so for those who don't know, Kishore Mabubani, he was, he, he still is actually a big kind of public intellectual influencer in Singapore, and he has a very Singaporean view of Asia. And he is famous for writing very compelling, making very compelling, um, simple arguments about Asia that are digestible and and like widespread, like a lot of people can can and understand what he's saying and like more or less agree. But it's also very polarizing. Like the fact of making a simple argument, has China won? Is the West over? Like he 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 asks and answers questions like that. And it's like they're too big to possibly be right, right? Um, they're too big to even like seriously answer. But he asks and answers them. And so he's like extremely controversial. And because he channels the Singaporean view of things, 
it's very focused on the economy, very focused on the status quo, very sort of pro-China, but also looking for alternatives to hedge against China. And so like all of that comes through in the piece here, just by way of context or background, right? I think the, the argument itself that the quad is going to play itself out, like it's not nearly as important as its participants hope, I think that's probably right. But that's more of like a prediction or like, we'll see, you know, if that's true, then time will tell, play itself out if that's the case. Um, what it's not is super dangerous because it's four countries who are all democracies who are having meetings together at their most ambitious. They had a maritime military exercise where people were not firing weapons. You know, like big fucking deal. That shit happens all the time. It's like it doesn't change Chinese foreign policy. It doesn't change Chinese strategy. It doesn't scare or cow China. So what are we what are we doing here? And so like the thing that I liked about this was like, one, he's making a prediction that we can follow and observe. And it kind of makes sense. There are some mischaracterizations here um, that I have issues with. Japan and China have not been friends for 1500 years They've coexisted in the sense that they both still exist, but fucking, they've fought wars against each other. They've been strategic rivals for 500 years. They are not, like, ask it, like, no Japanese strategist I know would, would agree with Kishore's characterizations, you know? Incidentally, this... just before you keep going, it, they coexist in the sense that they still both exist is a brilliant line. Yeah, that's... <laughs> It's like, <laughs> so we've good. all coexisted for 1,500 years, damn it, you know, except America because we weren't around. That's a dumb thing to say. But also, like, the fact that he's pointing out that these quad guys are playing the wrong game, I think that's right, and he's pointing to the economic game. I actually think that Asia is comprised of a series of games, and you sort of have to play all of them if you're smart. And you have to try to win at all of them, but you have to recognize that you are playing more than one game and these games are interdependent. And the two that are worth focusing on most heavily are military and economic. And I think he's right that China has Australia by the balls. And so like I had this screed on Twitter the other day, just totally incidental to this, where I was like, you know, just if you're getting strategically emasculated because another country has you by the fucking balls, what you do in response seems to be the chest thumping, get a, get a tattoo on your arm, go to the shooting range and huff and puff, but then still show up at, at your parents' dinner table at the end of the night because they've got you by the balls. And that's what Australia is doing. It's, it's huffing and puffing and acting all fucking militant. Oh, now we're going to take military balancing seriously. They can turn off your universities at a moment's notice because you are stupid enough to get in bed with them you know they own your mineral industry and so like all of this is just it's a joke to me that like you're going to get militarily tough with china while china has you by the balls strategically and economically it's a joke man and like that's what's going on and so if that's how we understand the quad then it really is going to play itself out or take us into war you know, and those are two very undesirable things. This piece brought up a lot that's novel to me or that like I sort of agree with. There are little details here that I don't agree with. And like oftentimes I disagree with Kishore's take about Asia, which is funny that like I would read this similarly as him. All right, time for Ask Me Anything where people ask me anything. This week for AMA, we have two questions. The first one is from Anonymous. Quincy Institute has been posting a lot about dark money in think tanks. Do you have any thoughts about what they're claiming and implying? Jury's out. Dark money sounds very dark, and I guess it kind of is. One of the things that has become true, what I saw one of the Quincy Institute guys post recently was about how uh, Congress is changing transparency and disclosure rules about like where your sources of funding come from when you testify before Congress. And so like when I testified before the house on, uh, in 2015 and they had just, Ooh. they had just changed the rules so that you have to show where your funding sources were, but it was very ambiguous and 
everything tank implemented the rule differently because the language was unclear about like what we were supposed to do. So I was one of the first people to testify under the new rule. And so as a think tank, my think tank, CNAS, it was like, okay, how do we handle this? We decided to handle it by disclosing everything, even stuff that I was not, I was not getting funding from government of Japan, but we let them know that, Hey, the think tank itself is getting this money from government of Japan. And like, we went down the list identifying funders and amounts and stuff, even though it was like nothing to do with me. Like it wasn't my funding that turned out to be, I don't know if that's what the policy still is at CNAS, but that was way more open kimono than what like anybody else did. And a lot of like the shittier think tanks, like the right wing ones, like Heritage and Foundation for Defense of Democracies and AEI, like they're super opaque about where their money comes from. And some of like F Heritage was like a Trump think tank the past few years. And FDD, Foundation for Defense of Democracies, they were like these had, had this huge influx of unaccounted for money. I mean, millions of dollars, like $10 million, something like that, out of nowhere in the middle of the Trump era. And they ended up becoming huge advocates and lobbyists for against the Iran nuclear deal and like trolling um, arms control advocates in the public sphere, trying to make a like gaslighting experts to try and make the Iran nuclear deal fall apart to justify and defend Trump walking away from the Iran nuclear deal. It was a very controversial thing. And there was a bunch of dark money at the heart of it. But um, the Quincy Institute kind of like paints with a broad brush. And so they lump mainstream think tanks like CSIS in with that far right weird shit as like, well, they're all bad and they're all operating on dark money. That's not, that's an overstatement. There is a, pro there is a problem with money as influence and buying research basically because it supports your view. That happens like all the time in a non quid pro quo kind of way. There's a kind of corruption at play in the system that's, that's different from dark money. Like the dark money thing is almost entirely on the right wing of the think tank spectrum as far as I know. But yeah, like it's it's not a clean system, you know, like it's a fucked up thing. So like I think in general the Quincy Institute doing this work is good. It's not going to win them any friends in Washington though, I'll tell you that. The second question this week is from Evan M from the University of Essex. Huge fan of the pod. Have you ever thought about doing video content or a newsletter? So when uh, I first started this, I actually had ambitions of doing both of those things, but I'm not sure what the value of video is because it's like we're fucking via Zoom most of the time now, and it's like a lot of work, and a newsletter is also a lot of work, and so like, <laughs> they, I, it's not that I don't want to do these things, you know, all you guys on the pod are not getting paid. I'm not making any money from this. So it's like, where if there's money, my philosophy, anything for a price, which is not very Marxist, but <laughs> like, like, you put enough money on the table, I'll make a fucking newsletter and videos with green screens and all kinds of shit, you know? But uh, right now, this is basically a not-for-profit venture. So like until I get a big, like until Coke money starts flowing in, I don't know. <laughs> and like to the awesome listener that asked, I really don't know what you want to see because like my Zoom camera at 8 a.m. on a Friday morning yeah. is probably as interesting as you'd expect it would be. Yeah. I'm, um, but, uh, I'm yeah. issuing a, a challenge to our listeners. Figure out the amount of money it would take to create fan Marjorie Taylor Greene. <laughs> I'm looking for a leftist <laughs> QAnon podcast. Uh, I reckon it'll take maybe five grand, maybe 10 grand, somewhere in that realm, but we're taking $50. I, I've never quite understood, like a lot of podcasts have a video component or like they film the podcast. We're all just sitting there. I don't know, like, what do you, what's, what do you get out of seeing my stupid face while I'm talking? Like, I don't know. Maybe some people, maybe people consume things via YouTube more. And so like, that's, 
if that's you then maybe that's what you prefer it seems the podcasts that that do it face to face and that have cameras are more like the joe rogan ones and the celebrity ones where it's almost part of the selling point to have their face on it yeah but whereas we it's ours is more analysis like my face does not add anything to prediction questions i ask you know so like oh you know what we could do we could do like the news channel thing where there's a green screen behind us and then you just point at it and go like oh here you go yeah (laughs) that's ah even if it looked good i it's just a lot of work you know anything for a price and i don't literally mean anything all right gang that's gonna do it i forgot how to end the show what do I say? Um, Can we just end it on anything for money. a price? Anything for, <laughs> anything for a price, but not literally anything. Okay. Um, almost anything. Uh, oh, buymeacoffee.com slash undiplomatic. That's one, right? And if you want to rate us on iTunes. Oh, and also if you sent us a uh, ask me anything question in the past few weeks, I've lost it. Sorry. Um, it's a long story. So if you want to send it to me again, no problem. Uh, We'll try to get it on the pod. And peace.